0: person living an unconventional life, usually in a colony with others. Enter a world of the bizarre, as we explore some of the most unique and fascinating topics in history, politics, and philosophy. Welcome to Bohemus. Welcome back to Bohemus. I want to begin this episode with a disclaimer. It was brought to my attention that the topics and themes I will discuss in this series are very problematic by modern standards. The Ottoman Empire itself is sort of a boogeyman in contemporary conversation. They're most famous for the Armenian Genocide, a tragedy that Turkey denies to this day. But they're also known for brutally suppressing separatist movements in the Balkans. Now I want to make it really clear that the Ottoman regime did terrible, heinous things, and the devshirme is often cited as one of those atrocities. However, the reason I chose to do a series on this topic is because the system of slavery present in the devshirme was also a tool for social mobility. In fact, it was one of the only social mobility tools for non-Muslims within the empire, and that's why I'd like to take a closer look at the system. This series will focus on a side of the defshamé that is often unemphasized. But I definitely don't want anyone to get the impression that this entire system was not built on kidnapping, castration, indoctrination, murder, and rape. This is partly why I began our first episode with the story about the boy. Some of the specifics of the story were fictionalized. In reality, Ottoman recruitment didn't happen in a carriage from door to door. It was done through several layers of local administration. But on the most fundamental level, the story rings true. You had soldiers, representing the local administration or vassal state, come door to door and force children away from their parents. Yet somehow, and this is partly what interested me about the topic, by the 16th century, both Christians and Muslims were trying to get their children into the Devshima. I repeat, they were trying to have their children abducted intentionally. We are a long way from that point, though, so I'll just leave that as a slight teaser. Finally, I wanted to let you guys know that this will not be an essay in audio form. Part of what drew me to the podcast medium was the intimacy and storytelling opportunity it provides, and I want to make the most of that by filling up this Ottoman world with imagery and detail. Now I will go on tangents. Sometimes they will be a couple sentences, sometimes they might be an entire episode, but they will always be relevant to our main story. Every aspect of Ottoman or Byzantine history you learn, the more context you will have when analyzing anything from this time period. And as a history major, one thing I learned is that you can never have too much context. Now that we have this out of the way, let's return to our story. Let's refresh real quick, for those not binging the episodes. We wrapped up last time with Orhan's conquest of Byzantine territory, through both conquest and strategic marriages with Byzantine nobility. But Murad's mother was not the Byzantine princess that Orhan had married. Murad's mother was a woman who adopted the name of Nilifer Hatun. Her real identity isn't known. But the tale of how she ended up in the Ottoman court is probably the closest thing to a love story for its time. There are many versions of this story, and the one I'm going to tell you is taken from a book called The Imperial Harem, Women and Sovereignty in the Ottoman Empire, by Leslie Pierce. Leslie Pierce is one of the foremost Ottomanists out there today. Now, as always, I'll leave the link to any sources I use in the show notes. Nilifer's original name is thought to have been Holophora, and she is thought to have been the daughter of a Greek noble living in a place called Bilisich in Anatolia. The story goes that Nilifer was about to get married to a Byzantine noble when Osman happened to arrive in the neighborhood. Sources vary on why Osman was there. Some say he was invited to attend the wedding, while others say his forces were out raiding for loot. A segment of Osman's forces arrived at the Bilisich castle where Nilofer was residing. Now, if you remember from last episode, Osman was the founder of the Ottoman dynasty, and during this time, the Ottomans were nothing more than a very minor beylik. A beylik is just the term for a small Turkic state. That's the size of a small duchy, or a decently-sized city with control of the surrounding land. The Ottomans weren't a large threat. They were one of many raiding Turkic peoples that had settled the region as Byzantine dominance faltered, Nilifer's father invited Osman into the fortress upon seeing the raiders. Now this may sound like a bad idea, but you have to consider that these Turkic peoples were frequently hired as mercenaries for the Byzantine Empire. We've already seen a case of this last episode with Orhan. So it could have been that Nilifer's father didn't want to rub these guys the wrong way, and figured that treating them with a little bit of hospitality would be useful in case they were ever needed in times of war. Besides, His options were to either talk to these raiders, or potentially have his daughter's wedding ceremony interrupted by a long siege. Now, regardless of what his rationale may have been, this was a bad idea. Things looked good initially. Osman entered the fortress with an entourage bearing lavish gifts. But then, for some reason, maybe after seeing Nilefer's beauty, maybe at his son's insistence, maybe this was the plan all along. Osman and his entourage attacked. Because they were already inside the city walls, there was nothing to stop the Ottoman forces while they carried out the medieval equivalent of a hit-and-run, capturing Nilüfer in the process. But again, sources are divisive, since some claim that the Ottomans didn't bother running and instead just captured the Bilicich castle right then and there. Nilüfer was taken as a slave, but her beauty caught the eye of Orhan. He wanted to marry her. Now one can only imagine how enthusiastic Nilifer must have been about this, but as was the way of things throughout most of history, the man had his way. In order to be a legal wife, she had to be converted to Islam, and this was when she adopted the name Nilifer Hatun. Nilifer was Persian for water lily, and Hatun was just a Turkish honorific for lady or woman. While married to Orhan, Nilifer had two possibly three children. The first of these, and the one that is disputed, was Orhan's firstborn child, Suleyman Pasha. He was, by all accounts, a good warrior and an even better strategist. Suleyman Pasha led several raids deep into Byzantine territory, going as far as conquering vast swaths of the region of Thrace. Unfortunately for him, he died in an accident when he fell off his horse while campaigning in Thrace. Nilifer's second son, Murad, is the son we know existed for sure. Murad was born three years after Suleiman Pasha, and it doesn't take a genius to suspect that something fishy might have been going on with Suleiman Pasha's accident. The early Ottoman state had a tendency for committing fratricide whenever and wherever possible. After all, it made succession a lot more simple. Nilifer had a third child, called Qasim, but unfortunately Qasim also died young. Outside of Nilifer, Orhan had multiple other wives, as was customary in Islamic society at the time. He also had two more sons, Ibrahim and Khalil, or Halil, depending on the source. Ibrahim managed to survive to adulthood and was even given the role of governor, until Murad had him executed after Orhan's death. Now Khalil was different to the other sons, because he was the grandchild of the regent from a previous episode, who eventually, with the help of Orhan, claimed the Byzantine emperorship. Khalil had a fascinating and tragic life, constantly suffering because of his high-profile connections. His misfortune began as a young child, when he was kidnapped by some pirates in the Bosphorus. Piracy in the Mediterranean and Black Seas was rampant during this period, especially since the entire Black Sea economy was known for its trade in slaves from the Caucasus. The most common pirates were the Greeks, but it was also common for the Genoese and Venetian merchants to turn to piracy when they had too much time on their hands. These pirates would strike deals with governors or generals to harbor them in exchange for a cut of whatever spoils they looted. In the case of Khalil, the pirates were Genoese, and they were hiding in a city on the Aegean coast called Phocia, that had recently been captured by the Byzantines. The governor general of the city was a general called Leo. Leo was technically a subject of the Byzantine emperor, but as we saw last episode, the empire was in a state of near constant civil war. The conflict between the child emperor John and the regent John had all but collapsed central authority as well as any control over Byzantine subjects. Orhan helped the regent defeat the child emperor, but even then, the regent had to share his position with a co-emperor from the child emperor's family. It's all a bit complicated. But Orhan wasn't aware of this pitiful state. So when he appealed to his father-in-law, Khalil's grandfather, to help get Khalil back, he expected some sort of efficiency. Khalil's location was discovered by the Byzantine scouts, since they were hiding in a Byzantine city, but when ordered to release him and capture the pirates, the governor Leo simply said no. This blatant insubordination prompted the emperor to undertake a siege of the city, which quickly devolved into a complete failure, since Byzantine factions within the army would just turn and help the besieged. This makes total sense from a soldier's perspective. Here you found yourself attacking your own countrymen, to rescue the son of a foreign king following a foreign religion, because your new emperor was buddy-buddy with this king, and as a result, plunged your state into a devastating civil war. Ultimately, Orhan realized the clear limitations of Byzantine authority. He gave up on trying to siege the city, and instead settled on a ransom with the pirates for the boy. Orhan paid 30,000 ducats, which was an insane amount of money for the time. But all his work to rescue Khalil wouldn't matter too much in the long run, since Murad, surprise surprise, had him executed as well after his ascension. Now you're starting to see why I have my suspicions about Suleiman Bey's supposed hunting accident. Now at first glance, all this brother killing may sound cruel or inhumane, But if you stop to think about it for a minute, it's exactly because fratricide and the Ottomans went hand in hand that the state was spared from a lot of internal conflict and civil war, the likes of which contributed to the downfall of their neighbors in Constantinople. Although this is not to say the Ottomans didn't have civil wars. In fact, the worst of their civil wars was yet to come. But for Murad, as the only surviving one of Orhan's five sons, He had no pretenders to the throne to worry about. One of the things that Murad did after rising to power was to turn on his father's allies. He immediately began a campaign against the Byzantine Empire. The Ottoman forces under Murad's control had multiple advantages against the Byzantine resistance. The Ottoman forces were large cavalry armies, with infantry regiments to supplement them, compared to the Byzantine forces, which were infantry-based. This meant that Murad could travel a lot faster and outmaneuver any Byzantine army. In addition to this, Murad's forces were comprised of either raiders or Tamariots. Timariots were Turkish people who were given land in exchange for their support during times of war, kind of like a Turkish knight. The constant raids and campaigns the Ottomans had been on since their inception meant that the troops were battle-hardened, and the raiding they did when not at war meant they were experienced, so they didn't take too many casualties. On the other hand, the Byzantine infantry was largely made of irregulars, mostly just recruited peasants. The strain of civil war meant a lot of the empire's best forces were killed in campaigns against each other. Finally, the Ottoman armies had a clear and effective chain of command, with generals that were loyal to Murad, since any that may have had questionable loyalty such as Murad's brothers, were executed. The Byzantines had no such structure. As an example, well, actually, as the example of Leo highlights, Byzantine generals were pseudo-independent, and the soldier was not loyal to the emperor, but to their generals. This made coordination difficult, but more importantly, it meant that if a city was under siege by Ottoman forces, it could not reliably ask for help from Constantinople, because Constantinople had lost control over the army. So when in 1363, Murad's forces began sieging the city of Adrianople, help was nowhere in sight. Adrianople was one of the largest cities in the empire, and losing it would be catastrophic. Yet, help was nowhere to be seen. And by the end of the year, the city had capitulated. Murad captured and renamed the city to Edirne and made it his capital, Unlike with the fortress of Cimpe, Edirne was an important economic and administrative center, and now that it was in Ottoman territory, the path to the rest of the Balkans was opened. Now I want to take a minute to describe the way Ottoman conquests worked during this period, because it will sound sort of bizarre by modern standards. Now the crux of this relied on how fluid borders were during this time. The maps you see They aren't really that accurate, they're just estimates or guesses. Most conquering was not done by two armies meeting in a field, but rather through sieges and raids. The process would go something like this. An Ottoman raiding party would venture into one of their neighbor's territories, looking for loot and plunder. These raiding parties would vary in size, from hundreds to tens of thousands. If these raiders happened to stumble on a fortified city, They would either ask the city to pay tribute, swear fealty to the sultan, or they would besiege the city. Then the neighboring state would have two options, send an army to relieve the siege or let it fall. If there was no response and the city fell, then the soldiers would loot, rape, pillage and murder to their heart's content. And if the city was of strategic value, then they would also place a friendly governor in charge or, as happened in the case of Edirne, take control of it personally. Then the raiders would move on to the next city, and they would continue this until the opposing state finally decided to send a force to counter them. Once a force was sent to the Ottomans, they would either attempt to fight it, if it was small enough, or simply retreat to one of the fortresses they conquered. This type of raider army was very popular and effective for the Muslim cavalry-based nations. Some of you may be familiar with the Battle of Tours in France. This is exactly what happened there. For those unacquainted, the Battle of Tours was canonized as a moment when Muslim expansion into Europe through Spain was halted. According to legend, an army was sent by the Umayyad Caliphate to conquer all of France, but the Frankish king, Charles Martel, led an army to fight them and successfully defeated the invading forces... At the city of Tours, thus ending Muslim attempts to invade France. Modern historians unanimously agree that this story is greatly exaggerated, and that the Islamic army sent was probably just a raiding force that was pushing its luck, similarly to how the Ottomans were expanding in Rumelia. Murad's initial raids went into Bulgaria and Serbia. Unlike in the case of the Byzantines, the Kingdom of Serbia was united and strong. The Serbian king Vukasin quickly organized an army to resist them. When confronted, Murad's forces were in no mood for a fight and retreated to Edirne. But Vukasin chased the young sultan all the way there. At Edirne, Murad had another army waiting. Vukasin's chasing army was encircled by the second army and defeated by the reinforcing Ottoman troops. This was in 1371, eight years after the fall of Edirne. Murad didn't stop adventuring into the Balkans, but this battle, even though the Ottomans won, was enough to put a stop to major campaigns in the region for some fifteen years. Murad wasn't just sitting around twiddling his thumbs during these fifteen years. He used the time to restructure the administration of both the military and the government of the Ottoman state. In 1383, Murad officially established the title of Sultan, and transformed the Ottomans from a typical Turkic tribe to an Islamic sultanate. He also issued a decree that required Christian subjects in the newly conquered European provinces to provide slaves as a tribute to the sultan. This is considered to be the earliest manifestations of the devshirme in Ottoman history. Murad took some of these tributes and trained them into a professional force that was loyal to the sultan alone. Murad's motivation behind doing this were twofold. One motive was to curb the power of the Turkish Tamars. I mentioned before that these were the Turkish equivalent of knights, and the rapid growth of the empire and constant warfare led to an over-alliance and growth of a powerful Tamariot class. The second motivation was Murad's desire to develop an infantry-based force similar to the Byzantines. Up until now, the bulk of Murad's forces were composed of cavalry, which was both a blessing and a curse. Cavalry was fast and deadly, but it was expensive to arm and maintain, as supplies had to be provided for both the men and the horses. In addition to this, it empowered the Turkish nobility, since in most cases they would provide the horses, supplies, and the men to ride them. Murad did not want to be at the whims of his nobility, so in order to safeguard his rapidly growing sultanate, he decided to create an infantry-based force. Infantry was less effective in battles, since gunpowder hadn't really taken off yet. But this small disadvantage was more than made up for because infantry was cheaper and more sustainable. Infantry could be used to do things necessary for a large state that cavalry simply couldn't, such as defend castles, conduct long sieges, and most importantly, police the population. The decision to create an army out of enslaved people was not a new concept. However, because recruitment happened from a young age, the practice was controversial even for its time. Some scholars of the period argued that enslaving Christian or Jewish subjects was a violation of the Islamic law, since adherents of any Abrahamic faith were given certain safeguards because they were considered less blasphemous than other faiths. To counter opposition, the state claimed that the deaf Shime recruits were. Technically not enslaved. Now, to understand why this was, we need to explore the process of recruitment a little further. In addition to asking local lords to collect the so called boy harvest, the Ottomans also had specially trained scouts dispersed throughout the European provinces. These scouts were recruiting youngsters according to their talent and ability, with school subjects, their personality, their character. And physical perfection. Now these were just a few of the criteria that barred a child from being selected. Most of these criteria made intuitive sense such as no disabled children or no children under the age of eight, but there were some other criteria that I couldn't quite wrap my head around. One such example was that the Devshirmeh students were not to be orphans or the only child in their family. Now, this was supposedly to ensure that the candidates had strong family values. But if you ask me, taking children that young wouldn't have given them time to develop any real family values. And if they did have those values, then surely they'd be extra difficult to mold, since they would just miss their families more? But hey, I don't know what the family dynamics of the time were, so it could easily go either way. Another bizarre criteria was that the recruits must not have already learned to speak Turkish, or any craft or trade. The children of craftsmen and artisans were automatically excluded from the devshime because the Ottomans believed that plucking them would harm the economy. Which makes sense. The Jewish people were also exempted because of their perceived value to the economy. But why have a restriction on children that already spoke Turkish? The ideal age of a recruit was between 8 and 20 years of age, so it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume some of them would know the language, especially if they were closer to 20. But documentation of the policy in Devshirme recruitment really only took off when the practice became political. So a lot of the restrictions and rules may have had other agendas, which have been lost to history. For example, it could be that the language restriction was aimed at ensuring that Turkic people who settled Rumelia wouldn't accidentally be recruited. If you fit the criteria, you were taken from your family and dressed in a red outfit. This was so that you couldn't easily escape on your way to the capital, and even if you did, it would be easy to spot you. The Ottoman state used clothing as a way to demarc class a lot. They had restrictions on what the peasants could wear, what the nobility were expected to wear, and, as you can clearly see, what kids recruited through the Devshirme were to wear. The cost of the Devshirme service and their clothes were paid for by their villages or communities which, as you can imagine, only further upset the locals. The boys were gathered into cohorts of around a hundred, and then they walked to Constantinople, where they were circumcised or castrated and then converted to Islam, before being divided between the palace schools and military training. Anyone not chosen for an education or the military would spend years doing manual labor on the Anatolian farms, until they were old enough to join the regular army. The children did not have any say in this matter. Back to the whole converting to Islam part. Under Islamic law, no Muslim was allowed to be enslaved, but the Ottomans got around this by claiming that the children were enslaved as Christians. This was a weak excuse, even among contemporaries, and the practice only continued because no power structure existed to hold the Sultan accountable. And besides, let's be frank, if you're willing to raid, conquer, murder, and enslave children, you aren't exactly a paragon of virtue, so why would you bother stopping at an arbitrary religious line? The children were raised as Muslims in the Sultan's palace until reaching adolescence, when these children were enrolled in one of the four imperial institutions – the palace staff, the scribes, the religious officers, or the military. Those enrolled in the military would become either a part of the Janissary Corps, or a part of the regular Ottoman corps, The brightest were sent to another institution for further education. No sources mention if this practice was started during Murad's reign, but we do know that later on, this elite institution would be at a place called Enderun We know for certain that the tradition of a palace school was established by Murad's great-grandson, Murad II, and that Murad II's son, Mehmed the Conqueror, who took Constantinople, would be the one to create the meritocratic Enderun school. As a quick side note, Mehmet was a fascinating figure who viewed himself as the heir to the Roman Empire, since he took the Byzantine capital, and had plans to invade Italy. We will definitely cover him in a future episode. But for now, let's get back to the story. If a recruit made it to the Enderun school, they were basically guaranteed a prestigious career, and the most competent could aspire to attain the very highest offices in the empire. There is an interesting flowchart of the different career paths available to students in the Enderun school, and I'll link to it in the show notes. The Enderun system consisted of three preparatory schools located outside of the palace, in addition to one within the palace walls. There were anywhere between a 1,000 to 2,000 students enrolled in the three Enderun colleges, and about 300 students in the elite school in the palace. The curriculum was divided into five main divisions. The Islamic sciences, which included three languages, Arabic, Turkish, and Persian. The positive sciences, which included basic mathematics and geography. History, law, and administration, to teach the students about the customs of Ottoman government and palace issues. Vocational studies, such as in art and music education. And finally, physical training since governors were expected at the time to lead troops if required. This was an approach to education that kind of resembles a lot of public school systems today, and was incredibly advanced for its time. To give some context, here's what a university curriculum in Italy at the time looked like. Note that we're comparing a university education to a primary school education, and Italy at the time had some of the best universities in Europe. Let's look specifically at the University of Bologna, which was established in 1088 and is considered to be one of the oldest universities in the world. The curriculum at Bologna would be centered around three subjects, called the Trivium. These were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Modern-day equivalents would be English and analytical philosophy. These, along with arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music theory, made up the seven subjects taught in Italy. The financial structure of European universities were similar to what we have in places like the U.S. today. With the exception of some notable universities such as Oxford or the University of Paris, most were private institutions funded by the students. Oxford was funded by the Crown of England, and the University of Paris was partially funded by the Church. This meant that the education was restricted to those that could afford it, which hasn't really changed much, even in modern times. One benefit the Enderun School had over the typical European university is that it taught matters of governance and gave its students practical as opposed to theoretical knowledge. The Enderun School was also funded by the state, and enrollment was meritocratic. The downsides from the perspective of the students is obvious, though, Employment options were virtually non-existent, although this was made significantly better since a life spent in an Ottoman bureaucracy was a luxurious one. At the end of the Enderun school system, the graduates were expected to be able to speak, read, and write at least three languages, to understand the latest developments in science, to have at least one craft or art mastered, and to excel in army command, as well as have sufficient close combat skills. Now compare this to the feudal nepotism-based hierarchy of most states at the time, and you can begin to see its appeal. Having a flow of competent bureaucrats to administer an ever-growing empire was as integral to Ottoman success as their formidable armies. After all, conquering an empire and maintaining an empire are two very different tasks, and Murad knew the importance of both. By 1385, He had completed his administrative restructuring, and once again set his eyes on the Balkans. His ventures into these territories would sow the seeds for centuries of conflict between the local ethnicities and the Ottoman invaders. But we're at the 30-minute mark, so we'll pick up this story next time. I think I should mention that while recording this episode, I was sick with a cold and fever, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to wait to get better or to make the episode anyway. I decided to make it anyway, so if my voice got nasal at times in the recording, or if I sniffled or cough, you know why. Finally, if you want to support this podcast, please spread the word. Tell your friends, family, and professors who you feel would be interested in the subject. You can also keep up to date on our official subreddit, r slash and if you're feeling particularly generous, you can donate directly or join our Patreon details of which can be found in the show notes and on the subreddit. Thank you all very much for listening, and I hope to see you next time on Bohemus.